Hello, friends and adventurers. Our podcast has been supported for months now by Misty Mountain Gaming, and they're now rewarding you, our listeners, with savings on all their fine D&D products, such as metal dice, stone dice, glass dice, miniatures, adventures, dice trays, and more. You can use the code TWINS10, that's T-W-I-N-S-1-0, to save 10% on all purchases made in their online store at MistyMountainGaming.com. Every code redeemed helps support Steven and I, and encourages us to make more and better content for you. So be sure to use code TWINS10 whenever you're buying premium Dungeons & Dragons dice and gear from our good friends at MistyMountainGaming.com. Okay, on with the show. Welcome back to Bardic to Inspiration as Rob, my brother, the D&D wannabe, and I, Steven, continue to go through the feats that have been presented in the one D&D playtest packet regarding the expert classes. Thank you so much for coming back to join us for this part two, because golly gosh darn, there sure are a lot of these things in here. (laughs) We had to break it up a little bit. How you doing, Rob? You hanging in there? I'm okay. We've hit the hour of the evening where at least the traffic outside my window has slowed down and the beer has come out. So this is likely to be a little bit more of a rambly episode, but we're going to try and get through so many feats. So many feats tonight. So I forget. Is it like 31 that we have left to go? We only went through 19 last time. I don't know how long the episode is going to shake out to be, but we were talking for about two hours. So goodness knows how long this is going to take us. It, it was a lot. I'm not going to lie. It was a lot, and uh, I have not yet edited it, and I'm not looking forward to it, so let's go ahead and do it. So we're going to jump right into it with as little preamble as possible. The next six feats we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about in a bunch, just to go ahead and get them out of the way. They are the fighting style feats. This is basically equivalent to taking the fighting initiate feat from 5th edition. You can take these as early as 1st level. You must be from the warrior group unless you have some kind of an exception. Rangers had a class feature that allowed them to ignore that requirement and still pick one of these up early on in their levels. But unless you are a warrior or have such a class feature, then these are going to be off the table for you. And as first-level feats, these are pretty attractive options. They're not radically different from what they were in 5th edition, but they were good in 5th edition, and they were always useful. And with very small exception, they function the exact same way. Archery still gives you an increased chance to hit with your ranged weapon attack rolls. Defense still gives you a bonus to your armor class when you're wearing armor. Dueling still gives you a buff to your damage when you hit with one-handed melee weapons. And Great Weapon Fighting lets you re-roll ones and twos on your damage dice with versatile or two-handed weapons. The two-weapon fighting style changed slightly just in the wording, but it still has the same function. It had to adapt to that new light weapon property and the way that offhand attacks are going to work in one D&D. Exactly. Five out of six of these are functionally exactly the same as they were in 5th edition. As a matter of fact, really, 
most of the wording is even the same. The only fighting style that saw a significant change moving from 5th edition to 6th edition was the protection fighting style feat. Previously, the way that the protection fighting style worked is that if you were holding a shield, you could interpose that between a adjacent ally and a source of damage, granting whoever was attacking them disadvantage on the attack roll that they were making. And you could do this as a reaction after you saw the initial attack roll. Now the way that it works is that it still uses your reaction, but instead of imposing disadvantage on the attack roll, you instead apply a flat negative two penalty. So... This is worse. It's worse. It's just way worse. Like, <laughs> I kind of liked the theme of the protection fighting style. If I was going for that sort of character, I was probably going to take the interception fighting style instead that was introduced later on. But I liked the theme here, and I felt like the mechanics pretty well allowed you to do that. And I don't think it was, like, stupid good. I thought it was actually kind of a little bad. So I don't know why they're making it so much worse when they left the other five completely unchanged. So I see where they're coming from, from a thematic and mechanical standpoint. You are basically offering your ally your shield, which gives you a plus two bonus to your armor class. So offering them that shield for an instant as your reaction, you are essentially raising their armor class by two or lowering the attack roll by two. Yes, the mechanics make perfect sense, yeah. It makes functional sense. But, yeah, causing one attack in a full round of combat that you only get to help out with someone who is standing very close to you, maybe someone made this broken. Maybe there's a build out there somewhere that I can't conceive of that really made this fighting style break the game. I don't know. I wasn't too scared of it as a dungeon master. I wasn't too impressed by it as a player. So, yeah, it's weird that this one was the only one that got different treatment. I agree. It makes perfect sense. You're basically giving them your shield in your hand to use to protect themselves. But the biggest problem for me is that this costs your reaction. There are just an increasing number with every book that's released of things that you can do with your reaction. And I got to assume that most of them will be available in one D&D, whether it's off the bat or not. Even if it's just like missing out on your opportunity to take an opportunity attack, to cast counterspell to use absorb elements, to cast shield on yourself, to do all the sorts of different things that you can do with your reaction. And instead, you're going to offer an adjacent ally an effective plus two. Sorry, no, it's not even that good. Because you're right, it's only applying to that one attack. You know, I would prefer to narratively justify the previous mechanic and keep it the way it was. Because the person who's attacking your ally doesn't expect them to suddenly have a shield. And that change in their expectations would be, to me, narrative justification for them to get disadvantage on that attack roll. It's not as if the target that they are attacking was wearing a shield and they were prepared to deal with that. This is all of a sudden they're fighting two people instead of one. I just feel bad. I regret to see the way it was handled. I was loath to take the protection fighting style before, even though I did it once, I think. I felt very much regret, even for having it the way it used to be, which is better than this one. I honestly can't see anyone picking this up. Not anyone who's actually concerned with how they will perform in combat. You know, I'm a big fan of fighters and shields. I don't typically use them because I think they're underutilized in the mechanics. I don't think they're done enough favors. I homebrewed my own Shield Maiden fighter subclass back in the day. I should make that available to people in the Discord or, you know, maybe the, the backers of the podcast or something. Patreon! But 
I, I love <laughs> the theme of that. And so I would love to love this. I, I don't love this. I, I didn't love it before when it was better. And I like it even less now. Yeah, I'm in the exact same place. I understand why they did it, just as you said. I just don't see what the point of even including this as it is currently written is. Like, even with bounded accuracy, minus two is fairly inconsequential when it comes to armor class. You know what? I say that, but most of my characters do carry shields because I do think that that plus two is valuable. But taking your reaction to offer that... So temporarily. It should at least last for the rest of the round. Yeah. I mean, if you could do this without using a reaction, if you that was just kind of a... Uh, no, that that would be too powerful. I, I like little auras, like shield auras, of everybody standing next to me gets a plus one to their AC. I think that's a cool thing. Yeah. If that was a fighting style, yeah. I mean, that would be you're, awesome. You're right. Adding a plus two passively, even just to one creature, would be too good. It's basically you are an animated shield. Well, let's move on from something that we both think is bad to something I suspect we're both going to enjoy. We're going to move on to the fourth level feat of Grappler. Gotta have a strength or dex of 13 or higher. And you can increase your strength or dex by one when you take the feat. As you go through its features, some of them will look passingly familiar from its 5e counterpart, such as your ability to attack creatures that you have successfully grappled with advantage. But now you get a couple of extra benefits. Normally in 1D&D, dragging a creature that you have grappled along with you when you move would grant you the slowed condition. However, this feat now allows you to completely ignore that rule, meaning that you can drag them along at your normal movement speed. In addition, the most fun part of this feat is that when an unarmed strike in 1D&D connects, you can normally choose to either deal damage or grapple the target. The grappler feat, however, allows you to select both of those options simultaneously once per turn. Right. As part of the same attack, you bloody somebody's nose and grab him by the shirt collar. And then assuming that you are a class that gets multiple attacks, such as a monk or a fighter, then you continue to pummel them. And now every strike of that pummeling is at advantage because you have them grappled, as per the previous point of the feat. So this is good. I like to see that synergy. I like to have that option. I like doing two things at once. I don't think this feat is good enough for me to want to become an unarmed fighter if I wasn't already. But if I'm already playing a monk, I can't pass this up. Oh, yeah. This is going to change the way that monks work in 1D&D. I think that the way that unarmed strikes work now, along with the way that the grappled condition works now, along with the grappler feet, may actually pull monks out of the toilet in 1D&D just by themselves. I don't know what you have against monks. I think they're good. (laughs) (laughs) I let it slide the last time you mentioned it, but I think monks in 5e are good. Okay, good is not subjective enough to cover what is favorable (laughs) about monks. Ah, boy. Anyway, okay. Yes, you're right. So you get this feat at 4th level at the earliest. At 5th level, you're going to unlock that extra attack feature if that's something that your class gets, meaning that, yes, you can now grapple them, attack them again with advantage, and drag them away without being slowed like you normally would be. It completely changes the way that your unarmed strikes work, and if you're a class that takes advantage of that, it gets crazy. This is a good feat now. I think it is borderline a must-have. For monks. It might be a great feat now. Yeah, I mean, this this has definitely done a 180 from what it used to be. Did we poo-poo on this back in our feats episodes way back when? If we didn't, we probably should have. I don't 
think so, <laughs> but it must barely have made the cut. Used to be you could grapple someone and then turn that grappled condition into the restrained condition, but it applied to you as well. You restrained yourself to restrain another person. It basically took you, your powerful player, out of the combat to take one other creature out of the combat, and it was just, right. it wasn't enough. It was great for single combat, but how often does that happen? I mean, <laughs> only if you want them to tap out. Like, <laughs> all you're doing is maintaining a status quo. This The situation will not improve from there. You know what's weird, Rob? We are moving on from a feat that used to be terrible in 5th edition and is now great to a feat that was once great in 5th edition and is now not as much with the greatness. <laughs> I think the way that this is is fine, but it's still overshadowed by some other feats, and we're losing a key component of Great Weapon Master that was that cost-benefit analysis. As it exists in 1D&D in this packet, it is a 4th level feat that grants you a bonus to your strength score and requires proficiency with a martial weapon to use. Which makes sense. I mean, it's Great Weapon Master. You couldn't possibly be a Great Weapon Master unless you're proficient in using Great Weapons, all of which are martial. So, first off... The cleave aspect of the feat has made a comeback. If you use a melee weapon and reduce a creature to zero hit points, you can make an additional attack with the same weapon as a bonus action. So it rewards you for being the executioner and lets you keep going. This is actually really similar to the uh, executioner talent in Divinity 2 The Original Sin, which is one of my favorite video games of all time, and I never pass that up. Because being able to keep killing once you kill is good. It doesn't come up as often in Dungeons & Dragons when you're operating with a full party as you do when you're doing a lone wolf run in Divinity The Original Sin 2, but now I've talked a little bit about Divinity The Original Sin 2 too much, so we're <laughs> going to move on from there, but what I are like we talking it. about? What podcast am I on? The Cleave feature, Steve, the Cleave feature. Which game do we discuss? The Cleave feature. This functions almost identically to the way it did in 5th edition with one notable and slightly damning exception, which is that the bonus action attack that you gain from this feature must now be used immediately. Previously, this was just something that was unlocked and you could move and use it later on in your turn, which is, I guess, not very thematic, but it was useful. Now it has to be usable immediately against another currently adjacent enemy. Which, I mean, when you think of it as a cleave, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, it definitely makes sense. I just, <laughs> you know me, I like to do stuff in the game, whether it makes sense or not. I feel bad whenever something that I used to be able to do gets taken away for, you know, thematic or balance reasons. Well, if you had a problem with that, why do you get a load of this? So the second aspect is heavy weapon mastery, and here's where you see the big difference. Now, when you hit a creature with a heavy weapon, once again, I'm sorry, halflings and other small creatures... You cannot wield these. You will get no use, my brothers. That's okay. Half of them can just choose to be medium at character creation anyway. Um, mm. Anyway, your attack deals extra damage equal to your proficiency bonus once per turn. Guys, the king is dead. The iconic great weapon master feature is gone. You can no longer take a negative five to your attack roll to get a flat plus ten on your damage every time you swing. This is a major change that a lot of people are going to get super upset about. And I think the only reason that I'm not throwing things around in my office is because I just never chose this play style. I mean, that is a big change. There are a lot of builds that hinged on taking this feat as early as possible and trying to get as much mileage out of it as they could. 
I mean, I think the iconic melee martial build is Great Weapon Master, Polearm Master, and Sentinel to just hit everything. Make sure that nothing gets away and just slam it for tons of damage. Pair that with Reckless Attack as a Barbarian to make sure you hit with that negative five. There you go. Uh, or Vow of Enmity as a Paladin. Yeah. yeah. The the King is dead. That particular build will not exist in 6th edition. They're cleaning house and taking away our ability to do break the game in the most obvious and synergistic ways. We're going to have to get a little bit more creative and find new ways in 6th edition, it looks like. Which is a challenge that I'm up for. Well, (laughs) let's not discount this entirely. Because until you got that build online, that negative 5 to hit may mean you deal no damage on your turn. As opposed to more damage on your turn. The way that the Great Weapon Master is written here, it does not do anything to your likelihood to hit. And you still get bonus damage. It's only equal to your proficiency bonus. So it's going to start out as a 2 at this level, and it's going to go up to a 6. Just think of it as a little rage bonus that you're getting to add on to your strikes. I am a little disappointed it's not happening every time, frankly. That once per turn, you get to add somewhere between a 2 and a 6 to the total damage that you've dealt. But yeah, it's not as good. I'm not going to pretend that it's as good. Or that I wasn't entertained by pressing the button that gave me a risk, a cost-benefit analysis that I was making every attack, every turn, because I could make a different choice as I made that assessment on every attack that I was making throughout the turn. And now I don't have that, and I am sad to see it go, and I have taken this feat on occasion. It's not that this is bad, it's that... We know what we lost. We lost something pretty incredible. Now, I've crapped on the Great Weapon Master as compared to the Sharpshooter feat in the past, because the Sharpshooter feat gave you this same option for ranged weapon attacks, plus better other features than the cleave. Mm -hmm. And you lost the cost-benefit analysis, and the cleave got worse. And just a little bit of a look ahead, Sharpshooter got better. (laughs) So it makes this choice even more damning. I think a lot of people are going to be interested in your thoughts on Sharpshooter then. And whether or not it is better or worse. but Oh, I'm ready. <laughs> At any rate, before we move on, a moment of silence for the dearly departed Great Weapon Master. I can just add dead air. You know I can just add dead air, right? You don't actually have to <laughs> the, the spend any time. The, si- the silence. Be respectful. Okay, moving on to heavily armored. Heavily armored! So, this is a 4th level feat. It's actually a little bit interesting that you must be 4th level to take this one now. This one, I wouldn't have minded being a 1st level feat if you really were into this, trying to bring your build online. But hey, here it is at 4th level. The only prerequisite is that you already know how to use medium armor. You get a bonus to your constitution or strength, and all you get out of it is heavy armor proficiency. Unless Rob weighs in again after this, this is going to be the fastest feat that we ever cover because this functions exactly like it did in 5th edition. And it is equally boring. Except that you now gain the option to get that plus one ability score increase in con as well as strength. So you now have some options, which we are always in favor of. Other than that, if you're proficient in medium armor, you're now proficient in heavy armor. Good job. No changes necessary from Wizards of the Coast other than this. Good job. It worked before, it works now, you get an extra option. I'm still never taking it. (laughs) Moving on to Heavy Armor Master. This is also a fourth level feat, and the prerequisite here is that you must have training in heavy armor. Just like with Heavily Armored, the plus one that you get for this fourth level feat can also be put into strength or constitution. 
Now, the way that it used to work in 5th edition is that any non-magical bludgeoning, piercing, or slashing damage that you took from any source for any reason was reduced by 3. But they made some pretty significant changes in the 1D&D version. And I am a fan of this. Now this feat, to me, is an investment. Now, when you're hit by an attack and you're wearing heavy armor, any weapon damage that you are dealt, bludgeoning, piercing, or slashing, is reduced by an amount equal to your proficiency bonus. So initially, if you're taking this feat at 4th level, it is worse than its 5e counterpart. You are reducing that damage by 2 instead of by 3. However... In 5th edition, that 3 never changed. It never got any better. Now, this feat will improve with you over time all the way up to, what is it, 17th level is where you get that plus 6 proficiency bonus? That's correct. So this is going to be twice as good, eventually, as its 5e counterpart. And as a matter of fact, at the very next level, after your very first opportunity to take this feat, it will already be better than its 5th edition counterpart because at 5th level, you will get a plus 3 proficiency bonus, meaning that you will now be reducing everything by 3 once again. But the 6th edition version does not specify that that physical damage must be non-magical. So even at 5th level, this is empirically better than the 5th edition version. And it will continue to get better up until 17th level where it is twice as good numerically and applies to magical physical damage as well. The only drawback to the 6th edition version, which is tiny, it's a small one, is that it now only applies to the damage dealt by attacks, whereas the 5th edition version applied to all physical damage that you received. And I think, as we've seen with various features as we've gone through this pamphlet, I think that's a correction they intentionally made, and I feel like it was something that they meant in 5th edition, and just phrased poorly and were hoisted by their own petard. Yeah, Heavy Armor Master no longer protects you from falling. Yeah, I don't think they meant it to protect you from falling off of a tower. I think (laughs) they were hoping that you knew how to move and defend yourself in the throes of combat while wearing this armor. And now that shows, and it shows out in 1D&D. Right, there were a couple of spells that could deal physical damage types, A couple of examples come to mind, but I'm not going to bother to list them. Uh, Okay, catapult. There you go. That's one of them. So you know that I'm not just making it up. But I feel like the main things outside of combat that you would be using this for would be things like traps and falling. And that's just, it probably wasn't intended to apply those. It doesn't anymore. But once you are in combat and you are being subjected to attacks, it is just better in every way one level later. And it's better in almost every way (laughs) immediately when you take this. Hey, speaking of things that are better in every way right away, you know what's not better in any way ever? Hmm. (laughs) I have a feeling you're transitioning into talking about our next feat, and uh, I do feel like it got worse. It has one caveat that I think might make it a little bit more versatile, but by and large, yeah, I think Inspiring Leader took a hit. Yep, to be able to take this feat, you must have a Wisdom or a Charisma of 13 or higher, and you increase one of those two ability scores by one when you take the feat. Other than that ability score increase, the only feature listed here under Inspiring Leader is called Encouraging Performance. Now, the way that it works in 1D&D is that you give a pep talk and choose six nearby buddies, which can include yourself. Uh, It's called being self-motivated, who witness your performance, 
and those buddies, possibly including yourself, will gain 2d4 <laughs> plus your proficiency bonus in temporary hit points. I'm sorry, you said you said witness. I'm imagining you talking to five of your friends, then holding a mirror slightly to your side so you can witness your own performance <laughs> and just looking over and tipping yourself a wink hey, now and look, again. Have you not watched like a movie where someone gives himself a pep talk in the mirror? <laughs> I think that's pretty much on point. All right. And I know the word witness is weird, but the word witness is the one that they use in the text for the feat. So I made sure to move it over. Witness me. It's a weird one. So the way that that used to work in fifth edition is that that amount of temporary hit points that you used to be able to confer to these six creatures used to be equal to your level plus your charisma modifier, which would quickly, very quickly, probably depending on your build, possibly immediately outpace the new version of Inspiring Leader. The only thing, the only redeeming quality about this nerf is that it is no longer locked to your charisma score. Now characters with good wisdom can take advantage of it as well. Now it's not just the paladin who can be an inspiring leader. It is also the cleric. Or the bard. Or the sorcerer. But you are correct. And that was not something that I had considered, that this was opening this up to the druid, to perhaps the monk, to perhaps the cleric. But you missed out on a couple of differences there that make a big difference to me. Hmm. See, I thought they were just opening a crappier door a little wider. Well, now you can only give that performance at the end of a rest of some kind. Inspiring Leader in 5e, you could give whenever you want, as long as you had 10 minutes to chat with your friends. You could do it multiple times per day. You could do it multiple times per rest. Oh, yeah, that was the whole basis for that thing we talked about a couple of episodes back where we were talking about using one feat to equip an army. Oh, yeah, that was in the feats episode, wasn't it? Yeah. We talked about how good Inspiring Leader was and how it should have been on my top five, probably. Yeah, so it's got a nerf not just in its usefulness, but in how it can be used, who it can be used for, and how often it can be used. Because you have to be finishing a rest every time you do this. So there's a maximum of 24 times, I guess, in the day that you could possibly do this before you exhaust yourself and stop helping out your friends. Also, you are right. While it is opening things up and not tying it to your ability score and it is bringing in your proficiency bonus, 2d4 is just too low. The highest your proficiency bonus is ever going to get is going to be a 6. Highest 2d4 can roll is an 8. The maximum potential of this feat is 14 temporary hit points to 6 creatures after a long rest. The old version of the feat could get that up to 24 because it was tied to your level plus an ability score. The difference between 14 and 24, between 6 and infinite people, is a pretty big deal. Yeah, for comparison, to achieve the maximum number that you could potentially roll as a 17th level person with inspiring feet in one D&D, you could achieve those numbers every time as a 9th level character in one D&D. Every time. Absolutely no chance to get lower, and that will continue to increase every level from 9th to 20th. Yeah, and, and the rolling element does give you the potential for disappointment that the inspiring leader delivered with consistency. So, is it bad? No. It, it is better than not having this feat. It is literally <laughs> better than nothing. It doesn't make you worse. Right. But it's it's not as good by any stretch. And it doesn't have to be as good, but it's been nerfed to the point that I'm not excited to take it anymore. Right. What are you giving up? It's not that this feat is bad. It's that the opportunity cost is high. The fact that you are giving up the opportunity to take some of these other things 
to potentially take this. And that's the reason why I can't imagine myself doing it anymore. As excited as I am by Inspiring Leader in 5th edition, I am equally as not excited about it in 1D&D. <laughs> yeah, you could be taking other feats. Other feats like Keen Mind. Another 4th level feat for 1D&D. This one featuring our first intelligence prerequisite of 13 and increasing your intelligence score exclusively when you take this. This is this is the feat for nerds. <laughs> Guys, Keen Mind in 5th edition had a reputation as being the feat that you took to piss off your DM. It had 3 bullet points. I thought that two was of which were large also that. <laughs> but it had 3 bullet points, two of which were fairly nominal and only mattered to you when you wanted them to matter. You could always tell which way was north, and you could always tell whether it was night or day. Big frickin' whoop. Whoopty frickin' do. The reason that you took Keen Mind in 5th edition is because you didn't have to take notes. It's because whenever you wanted to know something that had happened within the last month in-game, you could just ask your DM to remind you about it, because even though the player didn't remember, your character would be able to accurately recall any information that it had gained during that time frame. I've had entire campaigns that have lasted less than a month. Right. Keen Mind first came on my radar watching Critical Role Campaign 2, where Liam took this and used it constantly to make Matt just shake his head and glare. Mm. <laughs> As the fact that one half of the table, I don't remember who was sitting next to who, but you have Marisha who is fastidiously taking notes on everything that happens, and then you also have Liam who takes notes on nothing... <laughs> And just asks Matt to remind him everything. It was hilarious in a way, and it's also infuriating in a way. Uh, I guess depending on which side of the table you're on. But other than that, Keen Mind didn't give you a whole lot of mechanical benefit, whereas the 1D&D version actually does. Uh, allow me to say, from a mechanical standpoint, that is not game-breaking. That is not frustrating. It is just frustrating on a personal standpoint that <laughs> you have to you have to regurgitate stuff. Who likes repeating themselves, right? I kind of like it, personally. If, if someone were in my game and took this feat, that tells me that they care about what's going on in my game and that they want to know what's going on in the lore and that their characters are invested in it, even if the player is reasonable about their own ability to recall this information. I don't expect my players to know as much about the campaign world and the lore as I do because I came up with it. Of course I'm going to have that at my fingertips compared to them who are just coming and playing in my game once a week or less. Right. And to my point from earlier, I mean, it is a high opportunity cost. You know, think of what they're giving up to have you repeat yourself constantly. Right. And, you know, <laughs> I didn't mind the old feat. I wasn't frustrated about it. I wouldn't be angry if anyone took it. But I think I would be more inclined personally to take the new version of the feat, where... You can choose a knowledge skill, and if you lack proficiency in the skill, you gain that proficiency, and if you have proficiency, you gain expertise. I love stuff that gives me expertise, especially since this is not <laughs> locked to the expert class group. This is a way in. This is an open door for classes that didn't have access to that feature. Or it's a way for the classes that did have access to that feature to double down. Yeah, I'm, I'm never going to be mad when expertise shows Just up. Get a, quite frankly, dirty number of expertise. Um, in addition to gaining that proficiency and or expertise, from your choice of those five applicable skills, being Arcana, History, Investigation, Nature, or Religion, you also gain the ability Quick Study, which is very simple and just states you can take the study action as a bonus action. It's kind of hard to tell whether that's good or not unless you know what the study action entails. 
The study action allows you to make an intelligence check to gain information which otherwise might not be readily available to you from a sensory perspective. This can be just as simple as recalling some information that you had previously gained, but which was not top of mind. I guess it's only that, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) The study action in 1D&D seems to be kind of what the intelligence checks were in previous editions. Just having the DM info dump on you. (laughs) Take a dump on you. Informationally. It could be anything from lore about a particular god to resistances of a particular creature or anything up that alley. Someone with a keen mind is going to be able to do that as a bonus action, whereas it would normally require an action, and be able to act on that information immediately. Is it going to come up all the stinking time? I doubt it. But if you are playing with a legalistic DM who doesn't want to tell you anything unless you devote an action to trying to figure it out, you will be grateful for that feature. Which is, I think, going to be something that might come in pretty handy. The study action is the sort of thing that you might do if you're looking to recall information about, say, trolls. And what is it they're vulnerable to again? What stops that regeneration ability? I forget. How is it that you put down a flame skull for good? Why is that priest of Vosibus keep coming back every time we kill it, missing a couple more body parts and gaining a couple more powers? That is something that has value in combat, but it's probably not something that I really want to use my action for. Not when a bonus action would do. Precisely. I would be far more willing to give up my bonus action to get some of that insight than my ability to act upon it. Because now, if you can recall that information with a successful check on your bonus action, you still have your action available to act upon it. Let's face it, getting a new proficiency or expertise in a skill as well as an ability score bump, was probably enough reason for me to take this feat. I was already in. I was sold. Because I was pretty much the skill expert for a couple of specific options, and I remember you liked the skill expert feat. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it, if not exactly that. (laughs) But this gives you this neat little thing that if you don't know what else to do with your bonus action on a turn, you have something you can constantly be doing. And it's not specific to combat, but typically that's where we care about how the actions come into play. And it's good. And again, just the option to get a expert group feature as any class, as long as you're smart enough, is pretty appealing to me. Oh, I find that option pretty keen, if I do say so myself. It was a joke, because it's keen mind. Anyway, Uh moving on to lightly armored. We have our only new first level feat presented in this playtest material. Is that right? Ooh, okay. Well, other than the fighting styles, of course. This one has no prerequisites, meaning that anyone can take it. Lightly Armored allows you to gain armor training in light armor, medium armor, and shields. Now, the 5e version allowed you to gain proficiency in light armor, and it allowed you to increase your strength or dexterity by one. So at first glance, I thought this had gotten worse because we no longer had that half feet. We no longer had that ASI increase that we used to have. However, this combines the lightly armored feet and the moderately armored feet both in one. It allows you to skip straight to the medium arm because let's face it, pretty much no one that starts proficient in light armor is ever going to want to stay there. Light (laughs) armor is a stepping stone on the way to being able to actually protect yourself. (laughs) Here's the thing for me. I rarely engage in medium armor. If I'm going to have a high dexterity, I'm going to have light armor that lets me celebrate that. If I'm not going to have a high dexterity, 
I'm either going to be defending myself with spells or with the heaviest armor that I can stinking find. Mm -hmm. Really, the only thing that made moderately armored attractive to me before is that it gave you the option for a shield. Because shield training and medium armor training and proficiencies, however you want to express that, are always tied together. This gives you one feat that gives you your choice, whether you are a high dexterity character or a low dexterity character that wasn't already proficient in the kind of armor that you wanted, to get access to armor appropriate for how you want to approach the game, and gives you the option for shields. I can see wizards with shields now. A shield in one hand and a wand in the other hand. Like when I'm playing For the King, and I like that look. I think it's a good look for a spellcaster. And now you can take one feat instead of two to make that happen, which makes it viable. I really very rarely want to take two feats to bring one idea to life. I agree. Uh, I've done it, and we'll get to that in a minute, but I like how they've combined these two into a single feat. I I still don't know that I'm going to be a wizard in medium armor, but it's nice to have the option, and I'm excited to see what else they put into the game that might make that a viable option for me. In my current games, I am playing a bard who wears medium armor and a sorcerer who wears medium armor, both thanks to a one-level dip in Hexblade, and man, it does a lot for your survivability. So if you can get medium armor, you should, and now anyone can as a first-level feat. This is a very necessary step in my opinion because as I alluded to earlier, or maybe I outright said it, Light armor sucks, okay? I like light armor. Look, several of the classes in 5th edition who don't have medium armor proficiency do have unarmored defense. Things like barbarians and monks. So, like, while you have the ability to wear light armor as a monk, you probably don't need to slash want to because you're going to have actually better benefit from your unarmored defense feature and barbarians would definitely be the same way of course they do have medium armor proficiency so they could kind of go you know hither or thither but who's tanking their constitution as a barbarian right as soon as you get to a 16 in your alternate ability score either wisdom or constitution unarmored defense is going to take you farther sure and then the casters like you were saying who have no armor proficiency are probably going to be dissatisfied with light armor when they could just cast mage armor and completely supersede that but medium armor actually has a lot of advantages because it gives you a higher base than mage armor does except for that and disadvantages to your stealth checks (laughs) and that's why i still think light armor has a home Uh, it, it has a home for rogues and bards who don't want a multi-class. Sorry, you just mentioned my two favorite things in the game. <laughs> uh, you know, okay, all right. Yeah, I, I guess that makes sense why you think that light armor has a place at the table. And it it does for your two specific pet classes. But I know, I'm niche. But out, outside of that, everyone else is going to be really happy to have this. And you know what's weird is you do too. As as the only person who probably is listening to this podcast or creating it and thinking, man, that light armor, that's the stuff. Even you're excited to have this. That's looking pretty good over there. I think it's good. So, yeah, no complaints, no notes. Well done. You have successfully taken two feats that I would never take and made them into one that I definitely will as some character. Oh, yeah. As a first level feat and the fact that you get first level feats for free now, this is going to get picked up. This is going to get picked up a lot. This is going to get picked up by me a lot. So let's go on to the new version of the Mage Slayer feat. Mm. From a thematic standpoint in 5th edition, I loved this one. And I almost took it 
so many times, but I never did. It was never quite good enough. Steve, how does it stack up in 1D&D? Well, before I get into it, let me go ahead and say that I did take the Mage Slayer feat in 5th edition. I loved the theme so much, the flavor of being the person who doesn't use magic, but who has found a way to be resistant to it and has found a way to take on the people who do use the magic. We had a a one-shot, or I guess a long shot maybe, that you ran where we fought a tower full of mages, and I thought, yeah, this is where we're going to use that thing, baby. It just doesn't come up as much as you want to. You like Even when you try to engineer a situation where it's going to be relevant, the, the DM can just pick other spells. You think, yeah, I'm finally going to get to break this guy's concentration or he's not going to get anything past me. And then, you know, the DM just casts some cantrips or something. And then it, it doesn't matter that you had all these other features that were going to let you interact with them once they started casting some major spells. The one D&D version has improved upon that. First off, The Mage Slayer is a 4th level feat that requires that you be proficient with any martial weapon. And let's say there, we've already gotten through all the 20th level epic boons, you have revealed to us the only remaining 1st level feat, from this point on, they're all 4th level. Oh, fair enough, yeah. We'll we'll blanket statement that. (laughs) Fair enough, all 4th level feats from here on out. This one requires you to be proficient with any martial weapon, and allows you to get an increase in your strength or dexterity score. I love those scores. (laughs) They're the kind that you're going to use to run up and beat someone's face in, which is kind of what the Mage Slayer feat was always supposed to do. Now, unchanged from 5th edition is your ability to force disadvantage on any concentration saves that you personally are forcing a caster to make. Works the same way it used to. Like you said, sounds good, is good, if it comes up. Right. That is one of those things that is more in the Dungeon Master's hands than yours, and a good Dungeon Master will give you the opportunity to make that useful, but it's not something that you can activate on your own. So you know what we need to do to fix that? Is give you one of those things. It's give you a tool in your belt that is in your control. So while the 5th edition version of Mage Slayer used to allow you to make a reaction attack against adjacent casters and get advantage on saves against specifically their spells, specifically the one that is next to you, only if they're targeting you, we now have, in 1D&D, the ability to turn a failure on a mental stat saving throw into a success once per long rest. Ooh, hang on. Rob, how would you like to have legendary resistance once per day. I was about to say, dungeon masters have a term for turning (laughs) failures into successes when it comes to saving throws. That's a legendary resistance. It's a legendary resistance. (laughs) That is huge. Look, we talked a little bit earlier during the Rogue episode about how important it is to me to maintain control of my character, especially when it comes to intelligence, wisdom, and charisma saving throws that will displace my character, that will dominate my character, that will charm my character, that will befuddle my character and make them play differently than they want to and give me fewer options. Now, and I decide when I get to use this. Mm-hmm. It's a button you get to press. I get to decide whether or not this spell, this spell-like ability, this assault is worth me using it on. And it's only when I fail. If I succeed, I haven't spent anything. I get to bank that for the next time that sucker tries to do anything on me. And by sucker, I mean vampire because they suck the blood uh-huh. or whatever. Yeah. So this is, this is it's not quite a legendary resistance. A legendary resistance can target any ability score. Mm-hmm. But this is solid. And it's in the saving throws that I would want it to be in. Look, you're a dungeon master. You've run tons of creatures with legendary resistances. How often are you using that on a fireball? 
Never. Never. Okay, you're using it against the disabling effects. You're using it against the hold monster. Or, I don't know, maybe slow. Certainly the dominate monster. Definitely the banishment. You know the funny thing about all of those? Mental stat saving throws. And now, you as a player character get the Dungeon Master's favorite veto button that they get to use <laughs> on only their most powerful monsters. It's the most frustrating thing to be a caster and have your high-level spells countered by the Dungeon Master say, oh, it has legendary resistance. It uses one of its three on you. But you know what? You don't have three, but you got one, and you got it as early as fourth level. This is... This is solid. It's pretty dope. Almost to the point that it's surprising that it's here. But I do really love the mental image of this mage slayer, this warrior, this martial combatant charging up to a mage who has a smug grin on their face and says an arcane word, twiddles their fingers in their face, and a purple smoke puffs at the eyes of the charging hero only to clear, and the smirk has changed faces onto the face of the non-charmed, non-dominated, non-incapacitated guy with a great sword up in your face. <laughs> and, oh, it is a nice, it's a nice image. Ding dong. <laughs> then, you, then you stab him. <laughs> yeah, so old Mage Slayer, heavy on theme, not so great on execution. New Mage Slayer, still keeping up with theme, a lot more usable and a lot more powerful even once per long rest i mean that's that's good that's good you're not you're not going to be upset by that that's good it's there when you need it after mage slayer comes medium armor master this brings back exactly half of the fifth edition version hmm. and arguably it's not my favorite half of the fifth edition <laughs> version so i don't like this one some of you may recall that I've said that Medium Armor Master was on my bottom five list for the worst feats in 5th edition. Eventually, during that episode, I came back and kind of recanted it because I realized that actually Medium Armor Master is pretty good if you're a ranger, and pretty much only if you're a ranger. I did have to admit that it had its uses. Rangers in 5th edition would benefit from having the amount of their dexterity bonus that they could apply when wearing medium armor increased, and they would really like to not have disadvantage on their stealth checks when wearing medium armor, both of which were benefits that the medium armor master conferred in 5th edition. Of those two, the ability to ignore disadvantage created by your medium armor is strangely absent from the 6th edition version. Which? Why? What was that hurting? What what was game-breaking about having access to that? At fourth level, no less. I don't know why Watsy decided to pull that. Because I loved there being a way to make that happen. Even if it was just one feat that you could take. I loved there being a way to do that. Because surely there is a way to move in medium armor that wouldn't impose disadvantage on your stealth checks. Surely there is a way to overcome that. But no, they ripped it out of this, and all you are left with is a feat that requires you to already have medium armor proficiency, that gives you the ability to add three to your armor class instead of two, if you have a high enough dexterity to warrant it. And what you are left with is garbage. It is <laughs> rubbish. Why would you... There are, there are other ways to get a plus one to your armor class that don't require you to spend a feat to get it. So it seems like eventually Rob is kind of coming around to my grievances that I originally had with Medium Armor Master. Uh, of course, they did take away what he saw as the one redeeming quality. That was the reason to take it! Now, granted, the 5th edition version was definitely not broken. It was still kind of in a rough spot. 
Now, the 6th edition version does give you that half feat, that one extra ability score increase, so it's not as though they're giving you nothing to replace it with, but why couldn't it have been both? feel like it could have been both. I'd feel like it wasn't that big a deal. Perhaps giving you that increase to your dexterity score while also allowing you to take advantage of it in a new way, maybe they felt like that might be doubling down too much and needed some sort of drawback. I respectfully disagree, but... You know, it's still good for Rangers. I still probably don't see anyone else taking the feat. Next up, we have the Mounted Combatant feat. This feat requires that, once again, you have proficiency with a martial weapon and will provide you with that ability score increase in your choice of strength, dexterity, or wisdom, which is a spread you probably won't see on any other feat ever. Speaking of things you're not likely to see in another feat, this feat has four features locked within it. This is some of the most text we are going to see in a feat. Five if you include the ability score increase. Yeah, it's a lot. I, I think that's why I didn't read it all. <laughs> I'll read it all along with you. <laughs> so a new ability for this compared to the older edition or current edition. I don't know. I'm, I'm, all, I'm mentally I've already moved on to 1D&D. <laughs> Can you tell from the past several episodes? Do you like it that much or is it just because we've been talking about it so much? It's a little bit that we've been talking about it and a little bit that I'm already trying to mentally prepare for that transition when it comes because 5e is all I've known. Anyway, you get advantage on animal handling checks made to turn a new creature into your mount. I mean, that's that's thematically sound. I don't know that we needed it, but it, it fits. It's here. I feel like this is heralding some changes to downtime activities or something where making animal handling checks to turn creatures into your mount is going to be a thing. There's going to be a system for that. And this is going to make you do that better. We don't have the system for that, so I don't know how impactful this is going to be. But having advantage on doing something that you're apparently going to want to do sounds fine. It like, does. I mean, you know, it, it can't be bad. I will say it does mention that they have to be beasts, horses or other beasts. So that's still a pretty broad spectrum. You know, large dogs for small creatures like halflings, mastiffs and the like. Certainly wolves and dire wolves would fall into this category. But a hippogriff is a monstrosity. A dragon is clearly a dragon. There are limits to what this feat will do for you. But from there, we will move on to Mounted Strike, where you have advantage on attack rolls against creatures that are smaller than your mount and within melee attack range. Now, it does specify in 1D&D they have to be within 5 feet, as long as you could reach them from the back of your mount in 5e. 5e didn't care about the range. Now they've got to be right up on you. So I guess lances and the like may be a little less appealing, or at least you can only get full effect out of this feat if you close the gap. Minor change from 5th edition, it used to specify that the creature that you were attacking must be unmounted for you to gain said advantage. No such qualms about that in 6th edition. Oh, that's something I didn't catch. Well, it, it's small and it's weird, and it probably isn't going to make a difference very often, but hey. Hey, we'll take what we can get. But hey, it's a, it's a mark in the pro column. It is a restriction that is no longer there. We have another feature familiar from 5th edition that allows you to use your reaction to force attacks that would hit your mount to hit you instead. If you're really attached to that horse like Star Scourge Radon from Elden Ring and you would rather take the damage instead of it, you can do that. Oh, that poor horse. That poor horse. I will say, in 5e, it only mattered if it targeted your mount. Now it has to hit your mount, so you don't have to use your reaction if it's not 
going to successfully hit. Not that you would anyway, just kind of interesting that they clarified. And finally, the last feature offered to you by the mounted combatant feat is Leap Aside. This has a lot of text, but effectively what it is is evasion for your mount. If they succeed a saving throw instead of taking half damage, they now take no damage instead. And if they fail the saving throw, they only take half damage instead of full. Dexterity saving throws, specifically. For your mount to gain this benefit, you must be riding it and neither of you can be incapacitated, which is also now a qualification for evasion. It just, you have to be on top of the horse for it to be able to do this. Someone has to tell it to leap aside. Which, really, those two specifications that must be met in order to use this ability are the only change moving into 6th edition. It used to function exactly the same. It just didn't clarify those things, which, again, it would kind of make sense that you can't tell your horse to leap aside, nor can your horse leap aside if you tell it to, if either of you are incapacitated. It just, it just makes sense. So Mounted Combatant was not a feat I've ever taken as any of my player characters in 5th edition and it has not changed much since 5th edition. You do get that bonus of being able to have advantage on animal handling checks to train a new mount, but that's sort of incidental to me. Mm -hmm. Right. I am not any more tempted by this feat than I was in 5e. Well, I don't blame you because the words are different, and there's a couple of extra qualifications, but it functions pretty much exactly the same way as it did in 5th edition. The only real difference is that now you get that ability score increase. So is that enough of a reason for you to take it or not? Probably not for Rob. Probably not for me either, honestly, (laughs) unless I was trying to build around it. Here's the thing. Once upon a time in 5th edition, having an ability score increase as part of a feat was an appealing feature on that feat. Mm. It made it stand out against the backdrop of other feats that did not have that and made it more attractive. Now it comes standard with 4th level feats. That is not going to tempt me overtaking a different 4th level feat that will also give me an ability score increase. Do you know what I mean? I do. I wonder when we get to, say, 8th and 12th level feats, if we are going to see that trend continue, or if we're just going to start getting some things that are, like, so good that they can't have an ability score increase along with them. I'm wondering if they're going to continue level prerequisites beyond a certain point. Like, once you reach 12th level, is there really anything that has to be locked to 16th level, or... Dude, it's it's Wizards of the Coast. They're going to hit us with as many restrictions as they can. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. It's It just... I'm curious. This is so this is so new. This is so different. I wonder how much follow through they're going to have. Or if because it's stated that you can take a 4th level feat so long as you are 4th level or beyond, it's entirely possible that I could make a character that takes a 4th level feat every time I get a feat after 4th level. Definitely. Unless they just make the higher level feats that much more appealing. Yes, and I expect that that is exactly what they will be attempting to do, but If you made a character who took all 4th level feats, I think you would still be a pretty happy player. But I liked your insight about why the ability score increase is less pertinent now. I thought that that was a pretty good observation, pretty observant of you. And if you, listener, would like your character to be as observant as Rob, you can give them the observant feat. Oh, jeez. The prerequisite here is that you must have an intelligence or wisdom of 13 or higher. Can I just say, written next to this feat in my notes that I scribbled on my PDF is just the word good. (laughs) 
All right, looking at prerequisites, which it didn't have in 5th edition, you must have an intelligence or wisdom of 13 or higher, and you will now, as in 5th edition, get to increase one of those scores by 1 to a maximum of 20. This feat has two features included within it, the first of which is Keen Observer. Some of you may recall that Rob seemed to enjoy the lore knowledge feature of Keen Mind, wherein he gained a new proficiency or gained expertise in a skill that he was already proficient in. Observant gives that option once more, although with a slightly narrower array of skills, namely being able to choose from insight, investigation, or perception. So a little bit of a narrower selection, but still a very good feature. All right, I hear narrower selection, and it's just registering in my mind as better options, because I am going to be making insight, investigation, and perception checks in Dungeons & Dragons so much more than I'm going to be making arcana, history, and religion checks. Just so much more, so much more often. Probably true. Observant is to keen mind what combat prowess was to peerless aim. They are similar in form and in function with a slightly different purpose at the end. So whereas you would be getting proficiency or expertise mainly in intelligence skills with keen mind, you're getting it in wisdom information gathering skills here with observant as well as investigation, another information gathering skill. As with keen mind, where it allowed you to make the study action as a bonus action, observant will allow you to make the search action with a bonus action. The search action allowing you to take in your surroundings, use your senses to derive information about what's going on around you, specifically with the skills insight, medicine, perception, or survival. Now, at first blush, I thought that Keen Mind gave you the option to become proficient in all of the skills necessary to perform the study action, and that observant, by consequence, would also give you the ability to become proficient in all of the skills necessary to perform a search action. There are a couple of omissions, however. Notably, medicine and survival are not skills that you can become proficient in from either of those two feats. However, you can still garner information from them using the bonus actions from Observant. I like Observant better than Keen Mind. I think that I, as a player, am more likely to want to take the search action over the course of my turn. I think that I'm more excited to do that swiftly as a thief would do. A thief got the ability to make a search action as a bonus action. And I don't have to be a thief. I don't even have to be in the expert class group to be able to take this new proficiency, to be able to take this expertise, to be able to take these actions as a bonus action. This is a pretty big deal to me, and I like this. I easily see some of my characters taking this. Now, I will say that this is a pretty big departure from the observant feat in 5th edition. The Observant Feet in 5th edition looked quite different, including a bonus to your passive perception, which I have not noticed anything in the playtest content mentioning a passive perception. That's not to say it's not going to be there. It's just, I'm I'm pointing that out, it's probably not going to be as big a deal. I would wager that one D&D is going to do away with passives altogether. I think that it is conspicuously missing and that it would have been referenced somewhere if it were still going to be a thing. Personally, I'm not too sad to see that go. It had some weird interactions sometimes, where maybe passive things were being applied in places where they shouldn't have been, like, you know, your passive deception versus passive insight, you know, things like that. There are some things, I think, that should just be rolled for. 
because they have a high consequence for failure. And I think that the passes were being used in a lot of places where they shouldn't, and I am not sorry to see them go if that's the direction that they decide to take with it ultimately. All right, let's talk Polearm Master. Oh, This was one of those iconic martial character feats. I've only recently taken this feat myself for the first time in, in some ways out of protest because of how this feat was used against me as the dungeon master. It's it's effective. It's good. I'm a vegetarian. I started eating beef out of protest. And in 1D&D, it is basically the same feat with a couple of caveats that make it interact with the mechanics of the game a little bit differently. Right. Starting things off, it has the prerequisite that you must be proficient with any martial weapon in order to take this. Since the pole arms are martial weapons, it only makes sense that you be able to be proficient in them before you become a master of them. Because it's a half feat, as all fourth level feats are, you gain an increase to your strength score. Right. There's no such thing as a finesse pole arm. <laughs> so strength is the one you want. All right. Moving on to the different pieces of the puzzle that used to make this part of an infamous combo... We have Pole Strike. With Pole Strike, it allows you to take an additional attack on your turn after you have already made an attack with a weapon that is both a heavy weapon and a reach weapon. You come around with a bonus action and hit with the butt of the weapon, dealing a d4 of bludgeoning damage plus your strength modifier. This is, I mean, effectively how it worked in 5e. And it made it an attractive option, especially if you're playing a class that doesn't know what to do with its bonus action. Hurting someone with your bonus action is appealing. Agreed. This is another one of those where they have now specified that this secondary attack with the butt of the weapon must take place immediately after you make an attack as part of your attack action, whereas it previously made no specification. You could attack with the front end, move a little bit, and then attack with the back end. No such luck in 6th edition. Now it's a combo. Pop, pop. <laughs> Moving on to the second aspect of this feat, Reactive Strike. It states in a very familiar way that when you're holding such a weapon that has both heavy and reach properties, you can use your reaction to make a melee attack against someone when they enter your effective range. Boy, that sure does sound exactly like it used to in 5th edition, doesn't it? In fact, I, I put a check mark next to this one, which is, in, in my notes, a check mark means they didn't change a thing from 5th edition. And in my defense, it functions the same way as it did in 5th edition by itself. Where it changes is how it interacts with other class features and other feats and maybe other magic items. Yes, it's, this is a change of omission, a change of terminology, where Reactive Strike says specifically that you use a reaction to make a melee attack against a creature that enters the reach that you have with that weapon. What it does not say anymore is that you make an opportunity attack against that creature. And this is significant for one very big reason. Because of the way that Polar Master famously synergizes with the Sentinel feat in 5th edition. Party, party. There's <laughs> the no Sentinel more Sentinel with Polar Master. Uh -huh, the uh -huh, Sentinel feat uh -huh. in 5th edition states that whenever you make an opportunity attack and connect, that creature's speed becomes zero. And of course, we've probably all heard the interaction where using Polar Master, you can now reduce a creature's speed to zero while they are still 10 feet away from you using the reach property of your weapon, meaning that they can never actually enter into melee with you. 
for pretty much every humanoid creature, they're going to have a reach of five feet, and that means that you might be able to escape being attacked by them at all. So, if my little song there did not tip you off, which I'm leaving that in, by the way. I figured. I am not sad about this in the slightest. Because, just like when I am playing the game of D&D, when I'm running the game, I like to get to play my characters. And having one character be able to consistently shut down a target, especially in a boss encounter where there is a primary damage dealer, a primary thematic target who's just getting crippled by a combo that a variant human could have online at fourth level is pretty dumb. (laughs) So I'm not sad to see this go. Polearm Master is just as good by itself as it was in 5e. And I dare say Sentinel, when we get there, I think is as good as it was in 5e. The fact that they don't combo together into something broken doesn't make me sad. Elegant. This is elegant. <laughs> this is as good as it was in 5e with the added addition of that half ASI that all the other feats here are getting. It's still an attractive option, and we're still going to see a bunch of people take it because it's just good. Agreed. Now, they did make one other change to this feat, which is a pretty minor for probably most people, but there might be a few builds that will feel it. The Polar Master now only applies to weapons which have the heavy and reach properties, which means that the quarterstaff and the spear are no longer eligible options. However, the pike is now an eligible option. Hooray! There's a reason to take the pike! (laughs) (laughs) So, many of the complaints that we had with the pike no longer apply. It's still dumb. The spear is still going to be a good weapon. It's just not going to allow you to do this. (laughs) Moving on, then, to the resilient feat. Ooh, resilient should it should have been in our top feats list look looking back it's so good rob's regrets from the feats episode we we finally came to one that i had a regret (laughs) the resilient feat is extremely straightforward it allows you to put an ability score increase in the ability score of your choice and then you become proficient in saving throws related to that ability score It's extremely straightforward, it's extremely versatile, and it allows you to shore up some of your class's shortcomings in some very vulnerable areas. Saving throws are the gate through which some of the worst effects in the game must pass. If I'm hit with an attack, usually the worst thing that's coming out of that is damage. Maybe it's got some mummy rot laced on it, but before that mummy rot takes effect, I've got to make a saving throw. So I guess I'm proving my own point even by bringing that up. Saving throws are so important to succeed when you are faced with them. And being able to put saving throw proficiency and get up to a plus six in an ability score where you were vulnerable before is super important. It's also the first time we've seen a completely open-ended ability score increase on this feats list for you to put wherever you want it. It's probably not going into one of your primary ability scores. You've probably already got saving throw proficiency in those. But if you are planning ahead for this thing, you can leave that dangling odd number in an ability score, convert that to an even number, and get the proficiencies in the saving throw, and it is... Choice. I mean, it's good. It doesn't give you access to a new power. It doesn't give you a new button to push. It just shores up ensuring your character behaving the way that they're supposed to behave and surviving the stuff they're supposed to survive in ways that were less likely before you took this feat. To quote Todd Howard, 
it just works. You know, all of these things are things that we could have said back in our feats episode because this feat is wholly unchanged from 5th edition. And it's just as good now as it was then. Moving on to Ritual Caster. We have a feat that requires a 13 or higher in Intelligence, Wisdom, or Charisma, one of your mental stats, and will give you an ability score increase in the same. This has changed slightly from its 5th edition counterpart, and I think that has a lot to do with the new magical spell lists. I think it has a lot to do with that quick ritual feature. So you go ahead and talk about that, and I will come and back you up on the last part of that feat. It has changed slightly from its 5th edition counterpart in two notable ways. First off, you no longer get a spell book like you used to by taking this feat in 5th edition. That is significant because once you had the spell book in 5th edition, you could come back later and add more ritual spells like, say, a wizard would. Now, you simply select two first-level spells from any spell list, and you can now cast them as rituals or using any spell slots that you may have. Right. You never have to prepare them again. You always know how to use them, where they're at. You don't get to reselect, even if you are preparing spells as 1D&D seems to love to do. When you take this feat, you pick your rituals from this feat, and they must be at first level. You do get a new ability, however, to cast a spell as a ritual more quickly without expending a spell slot using this feat. Hmm. Once per long rest, you can cast a ritual spell without spending a spell slot using its normal casting time. It's basically getting a free spell as long as that spell is a ritual. Right, and I can think of a couple of situations where that might come in handy, such as comprehend languages when you're in some sort of high-stakes negotiation with a creature and trying to determine whether they're hostile or not. Maybe taking 10 minutes would uh, cast your comprehend languages might be a little too long to figure out exactly what their demands are. Being able to cast comprehend languages as an action and go ahead and continue that conversation, pretty handy. And something that would be wholly unusable in 5th edition unless you had spell slots. Now, any class with this feat can do it. It's a nice little homage, if you would. I like the idea that any jack schmuck can learn a couple rituals if they invest the time. That anyone can do magic if they're willing to put in the work. And this more so than magic initiate style feats that have some small talent or some small amount of study... I like the flavor behind this. I agree. Taking a look at the next feat, we come to the final piece of that infamous three-feet combo. The Polar Master, Great Weapon Master, and now Sentinel. Sentinel is one of my favorite feats in 5th edition. I put it on my list of my top five most powerful, and as Rob said previously, totally deserves to be there. <laughs> In 6th edition, you are required to have proficiency with a martial weapon in order to take this. And the first change we come to is the fact that it gives you a bonus to your strength or dexterity, which the 5e version did not. Right. Again, with the 4th level feats in 1D&D, it's ceasing to impress. Right. That, that's not making it special, but it is an out-and-out improvement above the Sentinel feat from 5e. The important thing to me is that as a 4th level feat, it means that I can still get this pretty early. And it comes with that added bonus. There's still a lot of feats left to cover that exist in 5th edition that may or may not be moved over to 6th edition. And some of those may not get that treatment because they might come in at a higher or lower level. So I'm very happy that Sentinel sits here and gets me that boost. 
And Sentinel, uh, it looks like they've combined a couple of the bullet points from 5e, but functionally, it's the same, isn't it? A creature within five feet of you that provokes an opportunity attack, whether or not it takes the disengage action, will get smacked by you. (laughs) And then when they get hit by that attack, or should I say if they get hit by that attack, they're not going anywhere else. Their speed becomes zero. You hamstring them. Am I missing anything? Is there any is there any cool combo that I've overlooked? Nope. Functionally, this works exactly as the 5th edition rules intended, with the exception that we noted previously that this is specifically an attack of opportunity, just like it used to be in 5th edition. The terminology exists here in the Sentinel feat, where it was absent in the Polar Master feat, which breaks that synergy that used to exist. Other than that, it's exactly what you remember with an extra strength or dexterity. So it only got better. Still take it. Still going to be one of the best feats in the game, if you ask me. Just not a broken combo piece. Just a good combo piece. <laughs> Speaking of some of the best feats in the game, one of the ones that made my list in the top five feats is Sharpshooter. And if I was asked to make another top five from this list, this would probably still make it. Sounds like you're not completely behind it anymore, but I still very much am. Well, if I'm being entirely transparent, people like the Great Weapon Master and Sharpsuiter feats so much that I've just never taken them. <laughs> That's how I feel about Cinnamon and Volar Master. Yeah, they, they just seemed a little conformist, and I wanted to try something new, I guess, so... By taking Sentinel and Polar Master? No, I haven't taken those two either. You've taken Sentinel. I've taken Sentinel, but not Polar Master. Uh, because I would like to find my own ways to break the game. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, they're admittedly somewhat suboptimal for having missed out on these. But, you know, I know how this works. I want to try other things and figure out how they work. So the sharpshooter feat, as mentioned in the Great Weapon Master discussion, has also lost that iconic feature that a lot of people took it for. And yet, Rob mentioned that he thinks that the feat has improved overall. So let's go through it point by point and see whether or not he has one. A point, that is. Ha ha! We must have proficiency with some martial weapon to be able to take this feat, and when we take it, our dexterity score is going to go up. That makes sense. You need to have something worth shooting, and uh, dexterity is the ability score that you would want to use to fire a ranged weapon, so this all tracks. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, if you're only good with a short bow and you only ever intend to use a short bow and that is a simple weapon, you can't take this feat. That's a little bit sad, but surely you're going to fumble your way into it. Hmm, maybe the short bow will be a martial weapon. We'll have to see. God forbid. They haven't mentioned any change yet. I noticed that they made a distinction about the short sword, so they probably would have mentioned something if they were a change to a weapon that universally accessible. We'll see. A couple of the points in this feat are going to look very similar, that you bypass half and three-quarters cover with your ranged attacks. If you can see someone's toenail poking out from behind a rock, you can make a regular attack roll against them without figuring in the bonus to their armor class granted by whatever they're hiding behind. This is lovely. This alone makes it an attractive option for a sniper character. Furthermore, long range no longer imposes disadvantage on your ranged attack rolls. This is also true from 5th edition. You get to use your weaponry at maximum range at peak efficiency. Great for staying out of trouble 
and still getting those shots in. Now, I also noticed that we have gained the firing in melee feature, which means that being within five feet of an enemy no longer imposes disadvantage either, which this is one of the two new additions to this feat here in 6th edition, which is interesting because now this means that whether you are five feet away from someone or 300 feet away from someone, as long as the target is within your maximum range, regardless of distance and how much cover they have, uh, excluding only full cover, you will no longer have disadvantage on that attack. This is why this is so good. Because all of my ranged weapon attack characters, specifically my scout rogue, my halfling pillory that based his entire character around picking up a bow and never putting it down and murdering everything on the island of Cholt, had to take two separate feats to be able to never have to change that weapon out, to never have to take disadvantage on the attack and break sneak attack for that rogue. Because if I had disadvantage for any reason... Sneak attack was not an option, and it still wouldn't be in one D&D. Right, not unless your teammates were helpful enough to stand right next to them, yeah. <laughs> I mean, even if they were, if I had disadvantage on the attack roll, I couldn't get sneak attack. That's the way that rogues work. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. I've always just tried to get it by using advantage anyway, so. I mean, even if you have advantage, if you have disadvantage, yes, they don't cancel each other. Okay, cool. So, the fact that this voids all of that is such a big deal, because I had to take the crossbow expert feat just for that one feature about firing in melee, because that was the only way you could get it in 5th edition for so long. Until, uh, what is it, the gunner feat came along. Yep, until gunner. Uh, which, even if I took the gunner feat, if I was using a short bow, that still wouldn't help me, right? Because th that's the only aspect of the gunner feat that I would get. Now they have combined that with the sharpshooter feat, which I was going to take anyway, and they have allowed me to get my build online at 4th level as a rogue instead of 8th. They did what they did with lightly armored and moderately armored, and combined two things that I want to make a more efficient feat. I don't care that I've missed out on a plus 10 to my damage. I'm going to be hitting so much more consistently and at any range. I am Mr. Versatility. I have one weapon for every situation now. Every situation. Sharpshooter was originally one of my top five feats in the game when we're talking about just raw power that it represents when you add it to your character sheet. And I believe that that was certainly true in 5th edition because it had that mechanic that was so easily usable and abusable. That is gone in all its forms from 6th edition as it currently stands, unless they add it back in with a higher level feat, which honestly wouldn't surprise me now that I think of it. But the sharpshooter feat, despite the absence of that ability, to me still remains incredibly strong thanks to its new ability score increase, and as Rob said, the ability to never have to worry about swapping out your weapons regardless of distance, and of course being able to ignore half and three quarters cover is always good. It still remains easily an iconic feat for a ranged character and still might be a must pick, even if for different reasons. Just sell all your other weapons. You're not going to need them. So let's leave ranged weapons behind us and move on to something that's a little bit more defensive. Looking at Shield Master, which logically requires shield training and will offer you an ability score increase to your strength. It's interesting, isn't it, that they don't care for defensive duelist, whether or not you were proficient with the finesse weapon that you were wielding, but here you've got to know what you're doing with the shield. <laughs> yeah, the prerequisites are getting a little bit 
a little bit finicky, but I can certainly understand being able to pick up a shield and gain some benefit from it. But to do these things with a shield, it makes sense that you might need a little bit of training. First up, we have Shield Bash. Shield Bash. So when you take the attack action on your turn and you have a shield equipped and have this feat, you can push the target of that attack with your shield in an effort either to knock them five feet back or to knock them prone. You force the target of your attack to make a strength saving throw with the DC equaling eight plus your strength modifier plus your proficiency bonus. Right. It sounds pretty much like what I remember for having taken the shield master feat before, except I noticed that you didn't say bonus action anywhere in this, nor did you say shove. And I am already enjoying the implications <laughs> that those absences mean. So what you're saying is that you can now make this shield bash as part of the attack action without expending any additional resources. Whereas it used to take your bonus action, it is now just included. And not only that, a shove, as it used to be expressed in 5th edition, would be a contested check. Now they are just rolling against what is effectively kind of like a strength spell save, DC? I mean, the calculation is the same, using a different stat. Well, that's the thing. This is all fairly standard for 5th edition. This is how 5th edition would have handled it. This is how a lot of the maneuvers for a battle master would work. But 1D&D has kind of moved away from that. You shove a creature differently, as we'll see when we get down to the glossary. You hit somebody's armor class if you want to knock them prone or knock them around the battlefield. And this is not using that. This is subjecting them to a saving throw. So while this mechanically works very well, as it did in 5e, this is the first time, I think, that we have seen this mechanic used as we've gone down the feats list in 1D&D. Not to say that that's a problem. It just it stood out to me when we got here that this is, this is abnormal for 1D&D. I said it in the last episode, and I'll say it again. I like the concept of getting rid of all of these opposed checks. This is just cleaner. It's going to take up less time at the table, and it's a calculation you're very used to making whenever you play any spellcasting characters. You just use a different ability score and see how the target matches up. It is, but it's, it's just fascinating to me that they're putting power in the player's hands normally to affect the enemy. Now it is in the enemy's hands to resist the players. I don't know if that makes any sense. It makes sense. Normally speaking, it's on the it's on the player to roll a die and come up with a number, and the dungeon master says if it passes or fails. Now the dungeon master is rolling behind the screen again, and that is happening so much less in 1D&D than it was in 5E. But I digress. I don't know. It doesn't bother me because like, if you're playing against the cleric, then every time they cast Sacred Flame it's going to be handled the exact same way. It's not novel, it's just being applied in a different area. Which I would argue is novel. I think it's fine. Seems fine. The other aspect of the shield master feat is to Captain America versus a grenade with your shield. When something is coming at you and you need to make a dexterity saving throw, where that dexterity saving throw could mean success is half damage and failure is full damage, if you succeed... You take no damage. It, it's the better half of evasion. If you succeed, you take nothing, and you're missing out on the rogue's ability to take half even if they fail. Does cost your reaction, which is not the case for the rogue's evasion property, however. Still, a cool tool in your belt. This is another one that I really enjoy the flavor of, and I have played and probably will play again 
paladins who take the interception fighting style and this feat to give them as many ways as possible to use their shield to protect an ally. If they give you the interception fighting style back. I'm sure it'll come out eventually. Then again, it might look different because they already nerfed the things that weren't good. (laughs) Who's to say the things that are good are safe? But, but, but let's not worry about that right now. I'm sure that my precious interception fighting style is going to be just fine. Let's take a look at Skulker. This is another feat that requires a dexterity of 13 or more and will increase your dexterity by 1 when you take it. Skulker was good enough in 5e that my scout rogue, previously mentioned, Pillory, took this one. And the reason being is because he spent so much time hiding... And he fought some monsters with some crazy armor class. I wanted to make sure that he didn't lose his hidden status, as it was understood in 5e, because he missed with a ranged attack. And the old Skulker feat means that you don't. And so does this one. If you miss while you're hidden, it doesn't end the hidden condition on you. That was reason enough for me to take the feat, but there's more. The very next feature already gets crazy. In addition to the sniper feature that Rob just mentioned, you also get blindsight. It's it's not a very original name for the feature because it gives you blindsight out to 10 feet. What, what more do you need to know? It's blindsight. That's pretty good. I mean, that's pretty good. So I don't know that I need to clarify that very much. It allows you to see anything that's around you, you know, even if it's invisible out to 10 feet. This is noteworthy because you can take this feat at 4th level, not a lot of classes were getting access to blindsight this early in the game. Very recently in 5th edition's history, they released, well, I mean, comparatively recently in 5th edition's history, they released a fighting style that allowed you to get blindsight out to 10 feet that a fighter could take at 2nd level. But other than that, this is earlier than anyone else in the game is getting access to it. It took a ranger till 15th level to get feral senses to have blindsight admittedly out to 30 feet, But that's almost four times as long through the level progression to be able to get this sense. This is pretty awesome. And it's not the only feature. (laughs) Right. In addition, we're going to be picking up the Fog of War feature, which states that when you attempt to hide during battle, you have advantage on stealth checks made to hide. I mean, mean, that's pretty awesome. I mean, we saw something similar with the Thief subclass getting supreme sneak at sixth level and that had the caveat that you couldn't be wearing anything but light armor to be able to make that work right at most right and this is coming in two levels sooner and isn't locked behind a particular class and subclass this is for anyone who has dexterity 13 or higher and let's face it if you're taking a lot of hide actions in combat you probably have invested right and being able to get advantage always i mean definitely it's in the heat of battle and Uh, That means when initiative has been rolled, this isn't an infiltration skill so much. But (laughs) that's pretty good. (laughs) not going to lie, that is pretty attractive. I don't know that you're going to take this as not a rogue, but as a rogue. Hmm? Yeah, I have no complaints with this one. It is good, solid, multifaceted. It's not particularly complex or nuanced. It just allows you to do multiple things better. It's very thematic. I'm probably not going to be taking this as most of the builds that entertain me, but there are a couple that this will just fully enable. Like, this is one of those feats that I enjoy because I build a character around them. 
selecting this early on as a character is going to give you a lot of opportunities to build around and to build upon. And I think you're going to end up with something that's very satisfying at the end of that. My only complaint, if there is a complaint on a good feat like this one, is that Fog of War and Sniper pair so well together. There is synergy there. And I see how those two can cooperate to perform a function for the same kind of character. The blind sight, I mean, I'm not turning it down. I'm not complaining. But it's just incidental. I could see a character taking this feat just for the blind sight and will never make use of the Fog of War and the Sniper, and vice versa. Some feats have better synergy than others. This one's a little eclectic, but I like all of the elements. Comparing it to its 5th edition version, it's different. There are some things from the 5th edition version that did not move over to this one D&D version, but it's just empirically better. I don't think anyone is going to mourn the loss of Old Skulker when presented with New Skulker. Yeah, again, I took Old Skulker in 5e. I would happily trade it out for this version. Something that I do think that people might bemoan the loss of is the mobile feat, which has been replaced by the one that comes up next, the speedster feat. This requires that you have a 13 or higher in dexterity or constitution and grants you an ability score increase in the same. The reason that I say that this is reminiscent of the old mobile feat is because it will help you increase your speed by 10 feet when you aren't wearing heavy armor. The old mobile feat did the same thing without that qualification. Yeah, mobile don't care. Mobile don't care what you're wearing. Mobile just gonna speed you up. (laughs) But you know what? I I guess if you are wearing heavy armor, there's probably a limit. (laughs) how much of a speedster you can be. It's it's not on theme anymore. Also, like the mobile feed that we enjoyed in 5th edition, the speedster feat states that when you take the dash action, you're no longer slowed by difficult terrain. Now, what's missing from the 1D&D version of the speedster feat that we used to get from the 5e mobile feat is the fact that when you successfully make a melee attack against a creature, you didn't provoke opportunity attacks when you ran away from them. I really like getting my ability score increases, but I don't know that that's an even trade. This is another one of those feats that I know a lot of people used to build around when they were trying to just make something that's extremely mechanically advantageous and break the game, or just because it was a play style that they enjoyed. Being able to kind of pseudo-disengage from anyone that you hit was something that a lot of people liked, and it doesn't currently have an analog in 6th edition. Yeah, as much as we like to call this a role-playing game, it is still a combat simulator in a lot of ways. It's it's still a, uh, what do they call it? It's a war strategy game. And the action economy is and always will be important to Dungeons & Dragons. There are other role-playing games out there where this is not such a big deal, but they're not D&D. This is D&D. If you are able to do something that would normally cost you an action, or in particular scenarios, your bonus action, for free, that's a big advantage. Not having to devote any part of your turn to disengaging from a target, especially, again, in big boss fights where there's one guy who's doing a lot of damage and you'd like to get away from him, please, without him giving you any negative repercussions for that action, that's a good thing. And that is a missing good thing. Speedster's not bad. But it's not mobile. And I gotta wonder if the removal of that feature is why they no longer call it the mobile feat. But, I mean, it's it's almost exactly the same except for that omission. So, 
I'm not sure why they didn't just keep the name. Is a plus one to your dexterity or constitution worth not having to disengage to you? Mm, no, I think I liked it the way it was. Mm. But I agree that it needs to be consistent with all the other fourth level feats and that it needed to get that ability score increase. Like I said earlier, I don't know if it's quite an even trade. Maybe this will be another one of those features that they add in at a higher level. You know, I mean, hey, fingers crossed. Maybe this will be part of a different feat, maybe called mobile, that you'll get later on. We will have to see. After the speedster feat is the spell sniper feat. Now, this is pretty much the spell version of the new sharpshooter feat that we covered just minutes ago. To be able to take this, rather than having the ability to wield any martial weapon, you must have the spellcasting or pact magic feature and you're increasing one of your mental stats instead of your dexterity. So a little added versatility there. You get to bypass half and three quarters cover, just like in Sharpshooter. You can cast your ranged attack spells within five feet of an enemy without having that action impose disadvantage on the roll, just like you did with ranged weapon attacks and Sharpshooter. So far, we are the same all the way down to that last ability. The last ability of Sharpshooter allowed you to ignore the disadvantage that would normally be applied when firing between your weapon's effective and longest range. Now, of course, spells just have one range, so a direct analog to the Sharpshooter feat isn't possible, but what they did instead is simply increased the range of all of your spells which require attack rolls by 60 feet. And let me tell you, that is welcome. 180-foot Eldritch Blast doesn't sound too bad to me. <laughs> That's before you put Eldritch Spear on that bad boy. All right, I've always thought that Eldritch Spear was a little bit gratuitous, but, you know, if I get an extra 60 feet kind of incidentally while getting other stuff that I kind of like, I'm not going to complain about it. I'm so much more likely to take Spell Sniper than Eldritch Spear. I think this is a good move, because the old version of Spell Sniper gave you a cantrip. That that was its third bullet point. Here, you don't get an extra spell. You already have spell casting and pack magic. You know spells. Now, they are longer. They are bigger. They are harder, better, faster, stronger. They are superior to all the spells of anyone else who didn't take this feat. It makes you special. It makes you better. And I like that. I do as well. Hey, you want to know something weird that you can do with this new version of Spell Sniper that you couldn't do with your old one? What's that? All right, let's say that you are trying to get into the thieves' hideout, and you knock on the door, and someone comes to the door and opens that little peephole and starts asking you for the password. Because the new Spell Sniper does not se- does not specify that your ranged spell attack rolls ignore half cover and three quarters cover, you can now use Shocking Grasp on the guy on the other side of the door. How you get your hand through that little peephole in order to in order to cast that spell, I have no idea, but mechanically speaking, that is possible. <laughs> uh, I see. So you're saying that the first feature of bypassing cover does not needs to be does not need to be a ranged spell attack. Correct. It just it can be a can touch be a spell, spell attack. It can be inflict wounds or shocking grasp or something like that. Like I don't I don't know how physically this happens. But it's possible rules is written. That is, I think, in a, a black spot in the rules as written. Because typically speaking, cover doesn't come into play unless it is a ranged attack. If you are in melee, cover's not a thing. 
So I'm not sure that's a big difference, but in that particular scenario you described, I as a dungeon master would have a hard time with that <laughs> without this feat. I'll just put it that yeah. way. <laughs> <clears throat> you just say, hey, I got a little secret for you. Come yeah. here. No, no closer. closer. And then you poke him in the eye through the peephole and, and inflict wounds when that you do it. That is another Emperor's New Groove reference. What is with you this month? It's, it's, it's not a month. It's just you're around. That's all. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Spell Sniper, good feat. I like it. Better feat that I like more, Warcaster. Yeah, we got Spellcaster feats back to back, and this one is iconic. In 5th edition, if I could cast a spell, I took Warcaster. Did this make my top five? Because it should have. I don't remember. This one did make your top five, and I think it was one of those that I later came back around and said, probably should have been on mine too. Warcaster (laughs) is dead. Darned effective. And if I remember correctly, we both liked it for different reasons. So let's see if either of those made it through to 1D&D. You have to have the option to cast spells or cast spells through Pact Magic to be able to take this feat. And you increase one of your mental ability scores by one when you take this feat. Just like in 5th edition, my favorite part of the Old Warcaster feat makes its comeback. You have advantage on constitution saving throws that you make to maintain your concentration, sir! Opens up a whole new playstyle, makes concentration spells last longer, and that's what you want out of some of the most powerful spells in the game. Is just to have them last long enough whether or not your fragile caster body is taking hits or not. The most devastating spells in the game, as far as their ability to impact the outcome of a battle, are usually the concentration control spells, and this feat will help you keep those up. In addition, my favorite part of the feat, the one that allows you to use the somatic components of spells while wielding a weapon or shield in your hands, is still around. In fact, the final aspect of Warcaster from 5th edition is still around too, which allows you to forego an opportunity attack to cast a spell at that creature instead, as long as it has a casting time of one action and targets only them. This is practically unchanged from 5th edition and gets an ability score increase on top of it. Warcaster, one of the best feats in the game, got improved. It was already one of my favorites and only got better. I loved it then. I'm surprised to find that I have new heights of love that my heart can reach when you give me a bonus to my ability score while I take this feat. But here we are. It's where I'm living. And gosh, it's nice to live here. Also, you can now get access to shields more easily as these casting classes with the way they've redone lightly armored. So, also that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Rob, we've only got one more. We have come... Thank goodness, because we've been recording for two and a half hours. And that's just the second episode. And it's 1.30. So, Weapon Master was a feat in 5th edition that allowed you to gain proficiency in any four weapons of your choice. Now, Weapon Training does all that and more. It has no prerequisites, meaning anyone can take it anytime, 4th level or higher. It allows you to gain an ability score increase to your strength or dexterity, and its primary feature is that you now gain proficiency in all martial weapons. I'm sorry, did you say all martial weapons? No, actually I was saying something that, yes, all martial weapons. So weapon training, out and out better than weapon master. There's so many builds that required me to multi-class as some wimpier class to be able to get access to the weapons that I wanted. Let's face it, it is easier to take a level dip than it is to 
progress through a class and wait for your next opportunity to take a feat. That is still probably going to be the case for 1D&D. But if you are looking forward to some of those higher level features from your class, this is a nice way to not break being single classed and still get access to the weapon that you want, and really any weapon that you want, all weapons that you want, with just one feat. And that's it. We have now covered in only a mere, what are we at now, like almost five and a half hours? Let's see, we started at eight. <laughs> we have gone over 50 feats. Oh, gosh. <laughs> All the ones included in the most current playtest packet at the time of recording. I feel like I should have taped my nipples for this marathon we just did of <laughs> going through all these feats. Oh, goodness. That would really hurt to take off. Oh, man. So many feats to hate on. So many epic boons to hate on. But so much to love. So many out-and-out improvements. So many things to be excited about with the 1D&D feats. Out of the ones that we talked about today, what stood out to you? What was your favorite? What was your least favorite? And why is it medium armor master? <laughs> oh, man. What did we notice that you missed? And more importantly, what did we miss that you noticed? Come tell us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or discuss it in our Discord. We are very excited about everything that we're being presented with and can't wait to talk about it more with, you know, maybe someone smarter than him. <laughs> Look, by the time that you hear this, we've been sitting on this for at least two weeks as I've been editing and we've been releasing the episodes prior. So we're we're on the edge of our swivel chairs waiting to hear from you about these things. Ooh. Don't keep us waiting. Maybe by the time this comes out, we'll have more playtest material to sample. Maybe we will. I, I kind of hope we do. It's fun talking about new stuff like there, there's plenty that we could say that's true about D&D or true about any tabletop role-playing game that you're interested in running or playing and that's kind of where the channel has been and I'm glad that we have been there and I do hope to go back but this is a nice little diversion as I'm getting to enjoy and be excited and disappointed about new stuff along with the community this is this is different but I like it and I'm here for it well, folks, that is the first 23 pages of this playtest packet. We still have 14 more to go. As we gloss over the spell list and take a deep look at the glossary, which we've made many references to as we've gone through the rest of these materials, looking at the classes and the feats, there's a lot of tie-ins to this section, but there are still some jewels that we have not yet mined. Right, as we move into the broader rule changes surrounding 1D&D that are listed here in the last several pages of the document, we're going to start to really get a feel for the direction that D&D is going, not on a class level, but on the game level. This is going to be especially important to dungeon masters and players hoping to really wrap their head around the rules and mechanics of the game and get the most out of it. If you are wanting to make a broken build, if you are wanting to understand your limits as a player and new opportunities being presented to you with the new edition, our next episode is not going to be one to miss. It's going to be more pages than we have attempted to cover on any singular topic thus far as we review these materials. There are several things from the original playtest they've already gone back on here in this release, so we look forward to picking through this, giving you a rundown, and giving you lots of our opinions in our next episode of Bardic to Inspiration. If you enjoyed this episode and wish to hear more like it, please consider supporting us on Patreon or on Anchor.fm. 
You can also support us by using code TWINS10. That's T-W-I-N-S-1-0 whenever buying dice or other premium Dungeons & Dragons products from MistyMountainGaming.com. Or just by sharing us with your friends. If you'd like to join the conversation, please join our community Discord or reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Links to all of that below the episode. And hey, in case you don't hear it anywhere else this week, we love you guys. Till next time. Welcome back to Bardic Inspiration as we continue to look through... You said inspiration. Damn it. The King is Dead. The iconic Gwait Gwait Weapon Master. (laughs) The Gwait Weapon Master. (laughs) Uh, How many beers was in that beer? How much beer was in that can? Uh, It's it's the most alcoholic beer they had at the store. The new version of Expiring Leader. You said Expiring Leader, and that just sounds sad. (laughs) Now characters with good wisdom can take advantage of it as well. Now it's not just the Paladin who can be an Expiring expiring now it's not just the paladin who can be an inspiring leader the new version of Ver- the feet. version sounded like virgin the new version of the feet anyway speaking of things that uh i don't remember what you said now let's talk sentinel polar master polar master like i said <laughs> what did we notice that you missed what did you miss that we noticed. No, I said that twice. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good blooper right there. <laughs>